the meantime, you can turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18. I want to say thank you to Al Bosenberg, who, who preached an excellent message last week. Uh, I was, uh, yeah, I, I listened to it um, Sunday afternoon, and I thought it was a, really a perfect follow-up to, to the, the two weeks before that. It really rounded out some things about the identity of Jesus as our our victorious and coming king. And it also gave me an idea or two about maybe how to end this series uh, when we get to that point, which I promise will happen before Christmas. Um, but thank you, Al, for your, your hard work and excellent, excellent work last week. Uh, this week, however, I want to uh, pivot a little bit and, and go to what is a very important topic having to do with the kingdom of God. And in this case, it's the idea of kingdom community. Kingdom community. Uh, one of the things that you have hopefully heard me saying a lot over the last several months is that although the church, okay, the church is God's kingdom community right now, the church, we are the people of Jesus, we are the people of the kingdom, the people of the king right now in this age, and we are, although we are not called to take over the world for Jesus right now, that is not our job in any political sense of, of the term, certainly. We are not called to take over. Nevertheless, we are called to establish what I have called outposts in this world, places where the kingdom influence is so strong that everyone can't help noticing it because God's kingdom people are living out God's kingdom values and living out kingdom lives in full view of other people. And we're doing it together. And in this way, we can legitimately add the word place to our definition of what the kingdom of God is today, that it is God's rule among God's people in God's place. But if the church, including us, if the church is, in, is called to establish these kinds of kingdom outposts in our world in order to show people what our king is like and to tell people his story, the gospel, then we're going to need to learn what it's like to live together as a kingdom community, to live together as people of the kingdom, to live together as the body of Christ in such a way that people who see us interacting with each other get a good idea of what Jesus is like and about the life that he offers them. And this is true, by the way, at every level. It's true of the church as a whole all around the world and how we relate to each other. It's true of the church in the United States of America and how we relate to each other across different denominations, different ethnic groups and that sort of thing as the body of Christ. It's true in the city of Lexington and, and in Davidson County. How does the body of Christ work together? There are many different Bible-believing congregations in this city. And it's also true, of course, of us within a church family like church First Alliance how do we relate to each other? How do we think of one another? How do we see ourselves in relationship to each other? Jesus has a lot to say about this thing called kingdom community in this chapter, Matthew 18. So we're going to spend the next two or three weeks here in this chapter trying to determine what it is he is trying to tell us about how to get along together as his people, the people of his kingdom. So I'm going to start by reading today the first 14 verses of Matthew 18. We're going to be spending most of our time in the first probably five or six verses, but we'll need to read the whole thing for context, and we'll look at it all eventually. It says, At that time or at that, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish." A lot there. Some of you will be maybe disappointed, but I will not be spending a lot of time talking about the angels in verse 10. Um, some, of the, some people have taken this to, to say that every believer or perhaps every little child has a guardian angel specifically assigned on a one-to-one correspondence to them uh, at birth. Uh, this is probably not the case, um, but I'm going to let you do that research on your own for now, okay? And so you can send me emails about guardian angels if you want, and we can talk about that. And who knows, maybe in a future week we will spend some time and go down that particular rabbit trail, but we will not do it this week. Uh, However, I will remark on the other mystery that you may have noticed in this passage if you are especially observant, because you may have noticed that there was no verse 11, at least in many of your translations. A few of your translations have a verse 11, but most don't, and you're wondering, why in the world wasn't there a verse 11? Was that like an unlucky number for Matthew or something like that? No, there's a reason, and we will mention that later. But, But one of the distinguishing marks of God's kingdom community and only the one that that Jesus is talking about in this passage today, is simply how we think of one another. How we think of one another, meaning what value do we place on each other? How do we prioritize each other? How do we view ourselves in relation to each other? And that's what we're going to be talking about today. And I want to start by looking at this attitude that Jesus' disciples have, and they show here at the beginning of the passage, and then what Jesus tells them to do, particularly in verse 3. Because in verse 3, he tells them that they're going to have to turn. And you might have missed that word. It's easy to skip over that word turn, but we can't because that word is really the key to this whole passage. That word is not just talking about a minor you know, course correction of some kind. That word translated turn means to make an about face. It means to turn completely around and go in the opposite direction. Sometimes it's actually translated to be converted. Jesus is calling his followers to make a big, monumental change here. So what is going on? Well, what prompts this whole dialogue here is is the disciples' question in verse 1. Because they they say to Jesus, hey, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And we know from Mark's account of this, this uh, discussion, that the disciples didn't just come up with that question on the spot. They had been thinking about it for a long time. In fact, there had been an ongoing dispute among the disciples leading up to this point about who the greatest one of them was going to be. And it says that Jesus knew about it. He knew this was going on kind of behind his back. And it wasn't the only time they did this either. 
it seems that the disciples just can't get this question out of their mind, who is the greatest? Who's the greatest? Well, a lot of you kind of maybe roll your eyes at this because it's a question about status and position, right? Who's in the, who's in the highest position? And some of you could care less about those things, right? The last thing some of you ever want is to be in charge of something or to be in the limelight or to be the recognized leader. You would just assume melt into the background, right? I would ask for a show of hands, but you wouldn't put them up, right? <laughs> but listen, I would argue that all of us, all of us have some work to do here. And it's because at some level, we have all developed a reflex to compare ourselves to others. And in some cases, even to assign value or importance to people based upon those comparisons and based on certain characteristics. We've all developed a reflex to compare ourselves to others and maybe even to assign value and importance to those people or to ourselves based on those comparisons. Now, when you look at what the disciples are saying here, you might start by saying, look, well, is it really that bad? I mean, aren't the disciples maybe just showing some ambition here? Maybe they're just showing a sense of healthy competition. I mean, aren't most guys like this after all? I mean, aren't, aren't we supposed to do the best that we can for Jesus and to be excellent? And didn't Jesus, didn't Paul say at one point that only one person wins a race, so run the race so as to win? Yeah, he said that. But let me say this. There are different kinds of competitiveness. There are different kinds of competitiveness. Tom Talman, who is over here and with whom I play racquetball two mornings a week, will tell you that I am one of the most competitive people he has ever known. The game is to 15, and if he gets ahead 14 to 3, he knows that he can't relax because he knows I'm not going to give up, right? And for Tom's part, he is not exactly in it for the participation trophy himself, right? But at the same time, neither of us is trying to establish dominance over the other person through our racquetball prowess. Neither of us, do, you know, for, for neither of us does our racquetball performance say anything about our relative worth or importance, although it might wreck our attitude for a few hours if we play badly, but it doesn't, it doesn't kill us. It's not the most important thing in our lives. Look at it from another angle. Some of you know that I sing with a choir up in Winston-Salem, and when I show up to the first practice of the year, which happened a few weeks ago, it's easy for me to, to hear the voices that are singing around me in the bass section and say, to, you know, say, wow, that guy's got a really nice voice. I, 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 will, I will never be able to be as good a singer as that guy. Or on the other side, oh, this guy over here is missing some notes. I guess he's not as good at reading music as I am. Well, why do I think in those terms? Well, because in my flesh, I have a reflex that leads me always to place myself somewhere in a pecking order, in an order of importance. And if I don't watch this and it continues on to its fruition, you know, to where it will eventually go, I could find myself one day saying things like, man, I will never be as good a singer as these people. Why am I even here? Maybe I should just quit. Or on the other hand, wow, I'm pretty good. They sure are lucky to have me in this group. Neither of which does anything to make the choir sound any better. This is the same mindset the disciples have fallen prey to here. And this is true in every area of life. It's true at work. It's true on your hobbies and sports and recreation. It's true in sibling rivalries within a family, right? Anybody deal with that ever? 
And the disciples are showing us here that it, it can happen even in the kingdom of God. You can almost hear what they're saying, you know, not the part that Jesus can supposedly hear, even though he knows they're talking about it, but they're following along, and, and, and one of them's thinking, you know, why, why are James and John always trying to be the teacher's pet? Doesn't Jesus know how temperamental they are all the time? Or do they just hide it when they're in front of him? What about Peter? Why is Peter such a prima donna? You know, why is he so exalted? I'm talking about a loose cannon. If I were in Peter's position, things would be going a lot smoother around here. I'll bet Jesus never would have called me Satan, right? But just like them, we can't stop comparing ourselves to other Christians. You know, I may not be as spiritual as her. I'll never be as spiritual as her. She, she seems to memorize the whole Bible, and she's always nice, and you know, you know so I'm never going to be that spiritual. But at least I'm not a total basket case like her. You know, that makes me feel better. Maybe I'm somewhere in the middle. Jesus says, time out, time out. He says, you need to know something about the kingdom of heaven. And in verse three, because Jesus is talking to his disciples here. So these are people that are already in the kingdom. They're already following him, right? So I think what Jesus is talking about here in this verse is what you might call the culmination of the kingdom, the final kingdom, the the, the time when Jesus comes back and and rules the nations, the the, the kingdom in all its fullness. And Jesus is saying to them, look, guys, when we get to that point and the kingdom arrives in all its fullness one day, you won't be able to bring that attitude through the gates because there's no place for it there. So between now and then, one thing that has to happen is that that attitude needs to be dealt with. And for that to happen, you guys need to turn. You need to change direction. You need to do an about-face because you're going the total wrong way. And to turn, he says, means to become like children. Now, why children? Not because they're innocent, not because children are naive, but because, listen, little children don't think that way. They don't. It doesn't occur to a little child to want to be seen as the greatest or immediately to rank themselves in some group or to make value judgments about who's more important than whom. Little kids don't think that way. Now, they eventually learn to, right? At different ages, some about five or six, most of them around late elementary school and some a little bit later, and they probably learn it from us, right? They do because from the time our child is in like preschool, we're already trying to put the child in the pecking order somewhere toward the front. If you go to your daughter on her U4 soccer team, okay? And you say, do you think you're a better soccer player than Emma? What's she going to say? She's going to give you a blank stare. She, what are you talking about? I never thought about that. You know what she was thinking? Kick the ball, kick the ball, kick the ball, because that's what everyone was screaming at her during the game. And if you went up to your, your little girl at four years old and you said, don't you think you should be the captain of the team? You know what she'd say? What do you, she'd say, what, the what? You know, kids, she's like, there's already a coach, right? Kids just want to run around, have fun, try to kick the ball, and do what the coach tells them to do, okay? And at their age, they might not be all that good at listening to the coach, but they would never think of second-guessing him. They leave that up to their parents. Do you see maybe a bit of analogy to the church here? Do you ever feel like you're second-guessing Jesus for letting certain people in or putting certain people in certain positions that you don't think they belong in in the body? Jesus says, look, I know this kind of thinking is all over the place in almost every corner of your life, but in the church, it's poison. 
Because my kingdom community will not be able to operate like that, and it won't look any different than the world around it if everyone's always jockeying for position. And Jesus says, in my kingdom, everybody that gets in is going to need to learn to think like a little kid. Yeah, to try your hardest, to play together as a team, to listen to the coach without second-guessing him, and to stop trying to figure out where you stand in the pecking order. And then he kind of gives us one more hint in verse 4 where he says in order to be great, not in the worldly sense, but in the kingdom sense, what you really need to do is you need to humble yourself like a little child. And that term, humble yourself, is all over the New Testament, by the way. It's in Peter, it's in James, it's in Philippians, it's other places. But one time that it's actually demonstrated in a real concrete way happens to be in 2 Corinthians eleven seven. You don't need to turn there. I'll tell you what's going on there. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. He's been under attack and getting criticism from a lot of people in the church. And he is defending himself to the Corinthians against some guys that he calls super apostles. Super apostles. And these super apostles, what they are, they are big shot celebrity speakers who would come into town and they would charge a lot of money to dispense their knowledge and and wisdom. And the Corinthian church was just eating this up. Even though these guys were mostly in it just to build up their own egos and reputation. But Paul says, look, I came to you in a totally different way. I didn't use fancy words. I didn't ask for any money, although I could have. I did manual labor to support myself the whole time I was with you. And you know what? Tent making, which was Paul's like worldly occupation, his skill, that wasn't a terribly glamorous profession. And Paul says, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically says, look, even though I'm not the world's greatest speaker, the knowledge that I had to offer you was much more valuable than anything those other guys were selling you, and I was giving it away for free. And then he says this, was I wrong to humble myself like that? and to elevate you by preaching the gospel to you free of charge. See, Paul, and if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, read the book of Acts. Paul is type A. Paul's a competitive guy. But he cared so much about these people, he didn't want to burden them. He didn't want them to to, to fall into the trap of honoring him in the place of God. He especially didn't want to give them the wrong idea about God's salvation, which, just like Paul's preaching, is a free gift. And Paul could have cared less about what these people thought of him as long as they thought the right thing about Jesus. That's what was important. Because even if it was at his own expense, he wanted to elevate them by giving them the gospel that could bring them into a saving relationship with Christ, even if he ended up looking lowly and undignified in the process. When you humble yourself, the way Jesus is talking about here. It's not just about you. It's not, humbling yourself is not just saying, oh, I'm such a crummy person. I'm such a lowly person. I'm such a worthless person. I'm in last place. No, that's not. When you humble yourself, you are placing a very high value on another person to lift them up and not yourself. And think about it. What does Jesus say in verse 5? He says, whoever receives one such child receives me. Did you think about that? What if Jesus walked into this room right now? What kind of treatment would you want to give him? Jesus is saying here, look, you need to assign the same value to these little ones, and we're going to talk about who they are in just a second, as you would assign to me. And treat them accordingly. But when you humble yourself like this, what you're doing is you are placing the kind of priority on others and on their spiritual condition, so much so that you forget about your own rank and your own reputation and your own status. 
Who cares where you rank in the pecking order of the kingdom if you have the chance to lift another priceless person whom Jesus died for up into a higher place? That's what he's saying. And you can see how the disciples were not even close to understanding this, and they wouldn't be for a while. But does Jesus give them any help here? Does he give us any help here? Any truth in this, in this chapter here that we can take to heart that will maybe help us to replace our self-exalting, competitive, and comparing type of mindset with a humble and accepting mindset that exalts other people and not ourselves? Is there any help here? Well, this is what he spends the rest of the chapter doing, actually. But first, I need to point out a very important shift that takes place in verse 5 because we need to understand it to get the rest of the chapter. That's where Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. That word such, and in your translation might say like this, but it means such a person. Someone like this, this kind of of person or this kind of child. But in saying this, Jesus is, is shifting. He's no longer referring to the literal child. He is now from here on referring to the disciple who has taken on the mindset of a little child. And Jesus, you can tell, because throughout the rest of the passage, he uses the term little ones to refer not to children exclusively, although they would certainly qualify, but to his followers, no matter what age we are. We are the little ones. John does the same thing in his letters. He calls the believers little children. That's how Jesus is using the term here. And the rest of the chapter here, the rest of the chapter is about Jesus' love for his little ones, meaning all of us who are in Christ. Because he knows, and we've got to get this through our thick heads, I do too, that if we really understand his love for us, then we will no longer need to do all the comparing or competing or jockeying for position and reputation in the kingdom of God because we will be so secure in his love for us that it won't matter. That's the goal. And I'm going to be real quick and simple here. Verses 5 to 9, there's different kinds of love here. Verses 5 to 9 are about Jesus' mama bear love. Mama bear love. Ever heard how a mama bear acts if someone is mistreating or threatening one of her cubs? You know what I mean by this, okay? I have seen actual human moms become mama bears. I have seen a few human moms in this congregation become mama bears about their kids on occasion, okay? You don't want to mess with a mama bear. You don't want to be on the other side of that telephone call. You also don't want to mess with a real mama bear, and you do not want to mess with Jesus when he goes mama bear protecting his little ones. That's us. And Jesus has some harsh words to say here, you probably noticed, for anyone who tries to hurt his little ones, especially by tripping us up spiritually. Anyone who tries to seduce us into sin, Anyone who tries to abuse us, anyone who beats us down into discouragement, anyone who tries to tear down our faith, anyone who tries to separate us from him in any way, that person is in trouble. In fact, this is one of the times that Jesus brings up the topic of hell a couple different times. You notice that. And you probably noticed also that there's kind of a disturbing twist here because it is, of course, possible for us as Christians to be the ones that trip up our brothers and sisters in the faith. And we don't want to be in that situation. In fact, Jesus seems to say here, he does, that it's possible for us to be our own stumbling block and to trip ourselves up. In that something that is attached to our life, an idol, a habit, a spirit of pride maybe, like the disciples were showing here, could be anything. But this thing is getting in the way of our relationship with Jesus. And my understanding of salvation says that Jesus is not going to abandon his little ones to hell. 
We're not going to lose our salvation, but in order to keep us on the road to heaven, Jesus is going to have to go mama bear on whatever it is that's keeping us from him. Even if that means that we are forced to go through some pain and some loss along the way. And Jesus is telling us that we need to be, we need to be just as ruthless with our own idols, with our own pride, with our own lust, with our own hateful spirit. And he compares it to chopping off limbs and gouging out eyes. And he says that because he loves us way too much to let us hang on to these poison things. And so if we don't do something about it, eventually he will. That's the mama bear, okay? Jesus loves us that way. And then verses 10 to 14, we have Jesus' shepherd love. And you probably recognize the parable that Jesus tells here, but it's a little different from the more famous version that you find over in Luke chapter 15. This is again the parable of the lost sheep. And this is one of those handfuls of times, and it's only a handful of times in the whole Bible, when we have an extra verse, verse 11, that was probably inserted by a copyist somewhere along the line who thought he was being helpful. Verse 11, if you don't have it in your Bible, which most of you don't, it says, for the Son of Man came to save the lost. That's a verse that is not found in the most reliable early manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew. And certainly that's a great verse. It's very true. But in this context, it's actually not really necessary. You see, over in Luke, over in Luke, when Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep, he's talking to Pharisees, and he's talking to them about lost people. And they don't care about these lost people, but Jesus does as their shepherd. And here, Jesus is no longer talking to Pharisees. He's talking to his disciples about their brothers and sisters in Christ, who they need to learn to care about more than they do, because he certainly does. In fact, he cares about them enough, cares about us enough, that if we go astray, and you might notice that Luke uses the word lost, but Matthew uses a different word. It says go astray. Jesus told this parable twice. This is the second time. If we go astray, he, Jesus, is coming after us because he loves us with a shepherd's love, and he is the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus died for us to come after us. He died for us to bring us back to his Father. He died for us to make it possible for that relationship to be put back together again and for us to have real life, eternal life, instead of helpless, hopeless, hell-bound life. But Jesus is not here anymore, physically. So how is his love supposed to be expressed today in the kingdom community, do you think? You probably guessed it, okay? We need to go after each other. We have to go after each other when we go astray. It is very humbling and even frightening for me to read verses like this as a pastor and to read verses like John 21, 17, which is where Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep, to recognize that it's not, who owns the sheep? Jesus does. They're not Peter's sheep, just like you're not my sheep. And that kind of floors me, and it probably does all of our church elders when we think about the responsibility he has given us not to watch after our flock at First Alliance, but to watch after his flock. But you know what? It's, it's a truth that you need to take to heart as well, even if you're not an elder, because although, yes, we do have shepherds, under-shepherds, over our congregation, we, we all need to be shepherding each other as well. This is where the small groups come in to some extent, Right? 
not just in small groups, but we need to be looking out for each other's interests, as it says in Philippians 2, especially for one another's spiritual health. And if we're too busy competing and comparing ourselves with one another, Jesus knows we will never be able to do this faithfully because we just will not care enough. Hebrews 10.25 says this, says, make sure you don't neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And the reason for that is not so that you can come on Sunday morning and hear from the pastor. That's not the reason. You could do that on the stream or on the podcast. It's that the reason is that we need to be encouraging one another, the author of Hebrews says. And then he says, and you need to do it all the more as you see the day approaching. As you see the day approaching, what day? Well, the day when we all go to stand before Jesus to give an account for how we've lived this new life he has freely given us. And he says we need to encourage one another. We need to build each other up, even to warn one another so that we all get to that place in good shape. And it's interesting, when I think of that verse in Hebrews, you know what I've always thought of? Because I've been on like, mission trips with a lot of crazy people running around trying to get on planes, and I've been, with, I've been a youth pastor trying to get kids on buses and things like that. And so I always think of being in an airline terminal, and, and the gate announcement is happening, and we're trying to get everybody through the gate and on the plane safely. That's what I think of when I think of Hebrews 10.25. As the day is approaching, the ETD is happening, we, we better get on the plane together. And everybody's got to make sure that everybody else gets on, like the buddy system. But in the last two weeks, that image has taken on a new dimension for me, honestly. I know that some of you are heartbroken and angry about the people that were left behind after the evacuation from Afghanistan. And I know that a lot of veterans and active duty military personnel that I have talked to are extremely upset, and rightly so, because you know that your job is not to run for the exits and leave people behind, but your job is supposed to be to be the last ones to leave after you've made sure everybody else gets to safety. But let me encourage you while you're thinking that to also, also apply that idea to the church, to the kingdom community. Because although I believe that God is faithful to keep all of his children safe to the end and that none of us is going to lose our salvation, no true believer in Jesus can be lost again. But I also believe, and this is critical, I believe that part of how God holds on to us is by using each of us to encourage our brothers and sisters not to give up the fight. You are part of eternal security for the person sitting next to you. Because as we see the day approaching, and as we realize that the time left is not unlimited, we look around the body of Christ and we see people who who are where they're at. You know, which ones are struggling? Which ones are straying? Which ones are hurting? Which ones are in despair or having doubts? Which ones are under attack? Which ones are stuck in sin? Which ones have fallen behind? Which ones is nobody else paying attention to? Our reflex should not be to say, oh well, at least I'm getting on ahead of that person but to say, oh no, Lord, tell me what I can do to encourage that person. So let me ask you, is that where you're at today in your heart? Or do you need to turn in your heart and become like that little child? I just have one last illustration. It's maybe a more positive one before we go to the Lord's table together. It's from an old movie that I probably shouldn't have watched because it was R-rated. 
And I watched it about 35 years ago before my discriminating taste changed in the content I would watch in movies. Um, but it was a very highly acclaimed film called An Officer and a Gentleman. And in that film, Richard Gere plays, uh, he's a Navy soldier, and he's going through officer candidate school. And toward the end of the movie, there is a scene in which Gere's character, and he, he's the hotshot soldier who's good at everything, you know, but his, his character uh, is trying to set the all-time record for the obstacle course that every candidate has to get through in order to become an officer. And the person running beside him is, is a female soldier who is a great officer material in every other way, but has never been able to get over that big wall in the middle of the obstacle course, and so she can't become an officer. And this is her last chance. This day is her last time to run the obstacle course. And the gun goes off, and everybody's eyes are on the Richard Gere character, and he just flies out of the gate, and, and he's, everybody's rooting for him, and he just flies through the course, and he is easily on pace to break the record. He gets over all the obstacles. He's got about 10 more yards to run, but as he looks, as he's running, he looks around, and he realizes that he's alone and that his fellow soldier is nowhere in sight. And to everyone's astonishment, he stops short of the finish line and he runs back to find this woman struggling to get up that wall and about to give up. And so he starts to scream at her. And he won't let her stop until finally she gets over that wall. And then they run through the rest of the course together and they cross the finish line at the same time. Brothers and sisters, in the kingdom of God, that's what winning looks like. That's what it looks like to win. If you get to the finish line by yourself, you've probably done something wrong. So as we go to the Lord's table this morning, let me ask you, you may not be at the finish line, but before you reach the end of, of this leg of your race, who do you need to go back for? Who do you need to go back and help over that wall?